When I was growing up, I, uh, my parents had a rule that really irked me. They did not let me have any poster of an athlete on the wall of my room. Now, you know, pennants of sports teams were fine. I could have trading cards, no problem. But, but any poster on my wall was like a no-fly zone, okay? And you may think, well, what's the big deal, John? Well, the big deal is that from first to third grade, during my kind of grown-up years, my first sports memories, we lived in Chicago. And during those years, the Bulls won their first championship. And friends, needless to say, I became a Michael Jordan fanatic, right? I wanted to be like Mike, just like a whole generation of kids like me. I remember being so jealous of my friend Tim Cutter. Uh, Tim had MJ posters plastered all over the walls of his room, like from, like from floor to ceiling. And I, I especially was so jealous of the one where maybe you've seen the famous MJ poster where it's you know, showing his wingspan and he's holding the ball in his right hand and looking like he's going to take flight in the, over, in the other. I wanted that poster so bad, but no, no poster of MJ ever hung on the wall of my room. You know what irked me as a kid? I kind of understand now. I kind of understand what my, what my parents were doing. Uh, I can understand their heart behind that rule. I don't think you know, having posters of athletes is sinful, don't get me wrong, but I understand the wisdom. They did not want me to be enamored with any person. They didn't want my heart to be captivated by lesser glories. Someone whose greatness is really temporary and illegitimate. They wanted my heart to love and admire the one who is the only one who is legitimately worthy of my heart's worship and praise. They wanted me to be enamored with our God. Friends, let me ask you a question. If, if we could look into the room of your heart, so to speak, what poster would we see as thumbtacked to the wall? In other words, if we, could, if we could kind of peer into the recesses of your soul, who or what would we see that you're enamored with, that you're captivated by, that, that you love, that you spend your time admiring? Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote, We glorify God when we are God admirers. That's the message of Psalm 145, our text for this morning, friends, that we praise and glorify our God when we are God admirers. Friends, what you set the eyes of your heart on, that's the thing that you'll praise. Who you think about, what you meditate on, that's what you'll want everyone else to know about. Whoever or whatever glory you stare at, that's what's going to shape your soul, and that's going to be the thing that you worship. Well, friends, thankfully in Psalm 145, David sets for us a wonderful example of what happens when the one whose poster is on the wall of our heart, so to speak, is indeed God the King. When we stare at his character, when we stare at his works with the eyes of faith, uh, what's going to burst out from every pore of our soul is unbridled praise to him. So turn in your Bibles this morning to Psalm 145. That's on page 524 of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, if you don't have a Bible, please use that one. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that Bible home that's under there and make it your Bible and read from it. Friends, this morning we come to sermon number seven of eight in the Psalms. Now you'll see next week that our guest preacher, Brian Arnold, is also preaching from the Psalms. That was a little bit unexpected, but I'm glad for him to do that. So I guess there's nine sermons in the Psalms, but as far as our series, as far as my series, this is uh, sermon seven of eight. 
Psalm 145 is kind of like the de facto last psalm of book five of the Psalter, okay? Psalm 150 at the very end, I guess, technically concludes book five as it concludes the whole songbook. Uh, but as we'll see here in a couple weeks when we swing back to Psalm 150, Psalm 146 to 50 are together kind of like the grand finale of the entire book of the Psalms. And here in Psalm 145, you can kind of feel that intensity start to ratchet up before the grand finale. It kind of prepares us for the great crescendo of praise that will come at the end of the Psalms. I think it's very fitting that Psalm 145 concludes book 5. Notice that the title above Psalm 145 says, Of David. This is the last psalm in the Psalms that we know was written by David, the great king, the great sweet, the sweet psalmist of Israel. In fact, there's really a whole slew of psalms right here at the end of this altar that are by David. And you say, well, John, what's the big deal? David wrote almost half the psalms. No biggie, right? Well, remember what we learned at the beginning of our series, that, that most of David's psalms are front-loaded in books one and two of the songbook. They dominate the beginning. Books 1 and 2 are filled with songs about his reign as king and particularly about his sufferings, which we know preview the sufferings of Jesus. But friends, do you remember from Psalm 72 how book 2 ends? Do you remember that? Psalm 72, 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So with this, the close of Psalm 72 and book 2 of the Psalms, it's kind of like David's reign ends in the story. It kind of get the sense that, that, that at the close of Psalm 72, King David is laid to rest and Solomon, his son, begins to reign. Because even the title of Psalm 72 says, of Solomon. You know, there's a smattering of David's songs that appear in, in books 3 to 5, but not with the high-density grouping like here at the end of book 5. So, so let me ask you a question and get you thinking for a second. Why do you think that the final editor of the Psalter, whether it's Ezra or Nehemiah or whoever did it, why do you think they inserted this grouping of David's psalms right here at the end of book five? Friends, I think we're meant to see the return of the king. Even though David had died, the hope of David's, uh, excuse me, of God's promise to David in his covenant continues on. God's people who read and sing the psalms are meant to put their hope in the greater David still to come. And of course, for us New Testament Christians, for the greater David who came and who will yet come again. Notice that the, the psalm title also says a song of praise. See that? Literally in the Hebrew, it says a praise, a praise. Now, now we know that the Hebrew word for the psalms is literally the word praises, but this is the only time, it's the first time and only time that an individual psalm is called a praise. 149 other psalms, none of them called what Psalm 145 is a praise. And that seems significant, doesn't it? What we have in Psalm 145 is a praise song by the great king for the greatest king. That's what it is. It's a song by the great king for the greatest king. In this psalm, David models for us a life of wholehearted praise to God. He shows us the connection, friends, between knowing God and loving God. Between seeing the king's glory and praising the king's glory. He shows us the types of things that we as Christians should be singing about and praying about and talking about 
in our lives and in the church. So let's read it together. Psalm 145. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in, in due season. You open your hand. You'd satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His works. The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, the structure of Psalm 145 is kind of fuzzy in English, but you could not miss it if you knew Hebrew, okay? Uh, and I'm not saying that I do, but I'm just saying that you couldn't miss it if you were reading the Hebrew. Psalm 145 is an acrostic. Each verse of Psalm 145 begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The only letter that's missing is the Hebrew letter noon, kind of like our N. Now, why is N missing? We don't know. It's just missing. Uh, that bracketed part there at the end of verse 35, or verse 35, verse 13, you'll see that, that it's in brackets because there's a footnote that the earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament did not include that. So a later editor said, well, this psalm's missing the letter noon. Why is the acrostic missing the N? And he, a later editor kind of inserted that that part, which of course is, is true. We know that the Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works, but it probably was not in the original text that, that David wrote. What's clear is that David uses the alphabet in his, as kind of his poetic launching pad to praise the king. You might say that in Psalm 145, David praises God from A to Z. That's kind of what's going on. David meant for this psalm to be beautiful and memorable. He wrote it as an acrostic so that others would easily join him in praising our God. Here's the main idea. Here's the main idea of Psalm 145 that I trust will be the main idea of this sermon if I'm doing this work of expositional preaching correctly. God the King is infinitely worthy of your praise every day and forever. God the King is infinitely worthy of your praise every day, but not only every day. He's worthy of it forever. Friends, the same theme bookends the psalm. 
you know, this kind of bookend poetic device should be very familiar to us now. We've seen it in so many of the Psalms. Verses 1 and 2, I will extol you, my God and King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. And then David ends similarly to how he began. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. So you see that similar theme there at the beginning and at the end. Friends, this psalm is so clearly a hymn of praise to God the King. One thing that is remarkable, I think, about Psalm 145 is that David uses so many different words to describe his praise. Did you see that? Extol, bless, praise, commend, declare, speak, pour forth, sing aloud, give thanks. Friends, David exhausts his vocabulary to help those who sing this song understand what it looks like to praise the Lord. In verse 1, David writes, I will extol you, my God and King which simply means I will exalt you. I will, I will lift you as high as I possibly can. It's not that our praises add to God's exaltation as sovereign of all, but that, that through our praises, we try to make him look as exalted as he really is. We magnify his majesty, his goodness, righteousness. You know, friends, biblical praise requires humility, doesn't it? The word bless in verses 1, 2, and 21, that word bless is from the Hebrew word that means to bow to kneel. It's like the one worshiping is humbled while the one who is worshiped is exalted. And when is it? When is it that, that David and we, as we voice this psalm, should extol and bless our God? Well, according to David, it's every day. Verse 2, every day I will bless you. Praise is what should naturally erupt out of our hearts on the regular, on hard days, and on easy days, on sunny days. And on cloudy days, praising God should be the responsive instinct of each one of our lives every day. And according to David, this everyday habit is one that has no end. It's like the psalm begins and ends with eternity. Did you notice that? Forever and ever. We ought to praise God forever. And indeed, the people of God will. The praise of God stretches beyond our temporal lives. It extends from generation to generation, as David says in verse 4. God's praise has no end because His glory has no end. It lasts forever. Friends, what David models, he expects all of us and all his creation to emulate. Verse 21, verse 21 echoes verses 1 and 2, but this time the emphasis is on universal praise. Let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. Friends, our praise for the Lord is not just endless, it's boundless. It's not just unending, it's universal, right? Did you notice all the alls when I was reading earlier? I tried to emphasize them, all the alls. There's 16 alls. If you count two words that are translated every in the text, 16 words comprehensively describing the praise of the universe. There are none who have a hall pass from the responsibility and privilege of extolling and blessing the King of Heaven. That's what the bookends of the psalm tell us. God is worthy of praise. What's between the, these bookends, verses 3 to 20, tells us why he's so worthy of praise. Why should we praise him like this? I, I see three big reasons. There are multiple reasons. I'm going to boil them down to three. Be the three points of our outline this morning. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about these three reasons to praise the Lord. Number one, 
because of God's unfathomable greatness. We see that in verses 3 to 7. Number two, because of his gracious reign. Number three, because of his faithful righteousness. God's unfathomable greatness, his gracious reign, his faithful righteousness. Friend, number one, why is God so worthy of your praise and mine? What's well, because of how great he is? Verse 3 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. David first turns to God's size, as it were, right? To his immensity, to his magnificence. Our God is great. In fact, so great is God that David says his greatness cannot be searched. It cannot be found. It, it, it blows past the boundaries of our finite minds. Friends, you could spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of God's greatness and not get close to the bottom. It's like going on a hike with your, your kids, right? Maybe you have young children, you go up in a hike in the white tanks, right? And one of them, little guy, maybe a little girl, picks up a rock and beaming with pride, he brings it back to you and says, Mommy, Daddy, look what I have. I've got the mountain. I'm bringing you the mountain in my hands. Friends, that's silly, but that's kind of what, it, what it's like that when we think we can get our hands, our arms around the immensity of our God. What our mind can comprehend are but the mere edges of his infinite glory and majesty. What David does in verses 4 to 7 is just riff on God's greatness. Some of my favorite verses in all the Bible. It helps us understand God's greatness in terms of his works, his mighty acts. You see that in verse, verse 4. One generation commends what? Your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. In verse 6, he sings of the might of God's awesome deeds. Friends, what are these deeds? What are these mighty acts? What are these works? Oh, these are his mighty acts in creation and redemption. It's when he puts his glory on display in history, first by creating the world and then by saving his rebellious creatures. And how might David know what these mighty acts are? Well, look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. It says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Friends, the, the, the word translated works there is actually the Hebrew word for words. It's not the word for works that we see above. It's the word for words. Why did the ESV translators translate it as works? Well, I think they were just trying to make sense of what David's idea was. But here's where I think, what I think David is saying. I'm going to meditate on God's wonderful words. Just like the king of Israel is supposed to do, according to Deuteronomy 17, Psalm 1, I'm going to fill my mind with the wondrous words of the Lord that tell of all his wondrous works and all of his mighty acts. And then I'm going to broadcast his glory. I'm going to praise him. My heart's going to spring, burst forth in praise. So look at the text with me. Look at the Bible. If verse 5 is about God's wondrous words, then I think these words are the they of verse 6. They, the wondrous words, shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They, the wondrous words, shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and I will tell of your greatness, I think is the likely translation. Friends, friends why were God's mighty acts streaming through David's mind on loop throughout the day? 
because David was meditating on God's wondrous words. God had revealed himself through his word. As he reveals himself in history, men inspired by the scripture record by the Holy Spirit record in sacred scripture God's mighty acts. And that's what David was meditating on. He could not help for praise to just bubble up from what he was seeing in the scripture. Friends, what is on loop in your mind throughout the day? Do you meditate on the wondrous words of the Lord to the point that you just cannot help but talk about them and sing about them and praise them? Notice in verse 4, David does not have in mind merely inward spirituality or personal piety. No, this praise is profoundly outward. It's verbal. One generation commends your works and shall declare your mighty acts. Friends, what your heart values, your mouth will praise. Okay? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you admire will come out in what you talk about and what you sing about. Friends, consider with me for a moment God's unsearchable greatness in his mighty acts. Let's just meditate on what David was. First of all, in creation. Friends, so great is our God that he created from nothing, using nothing but his word. You know, some of you may pride yourself on cooking from scratch or, or, or building from the studs up. But friends, you still had scratch and stuff to, and studs to start with, right? God had no stuff to start with. He spoke and the stuff came to be. So great is our God that he hung the galaxies in place like you and I hang our shirts in our closet. Have you guys seen the images coming from the new James Webb telescope? Have you guys seen those floating around? Just unbelievable. Just incredible. Just last week, the, the telescope took these breathtaking pictures of the cartwheel galaxy. It looks like this giant kind of wagon wheel of a galaxy in the sky, this neon, you know, Ferris wheel in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in space. It's like 500 million miles away. It's made up of millions of stars and planets and supernovas and all the rest. Friends, how many undiscovered galaxies are there that humans have never seen? That our technology, is, even as advanced as it is, is not powerful enough to capture. Worlds so deep into space that the only point of their existence is for the good pleasure of the Creator to behold and delight in His works. Our God's creative power isn't just seen in the majestic, is it, but in the minute. The God who hung the galaxies created the human eye. The God who created the, the galaxies made the cellular world, right, that holds all things together. Like a master craftsman, our God designed them all with intricate detail and precision. Friends, you want to marvel at the mighty acts of the Lord? Let me give you a pro tip. Go visit an aquarium, right? So it's kind of a joke, but seriously. Lindsay and I in, in March were at the Shedd Aquarium in, in, in Chicago, and we saw fish and sea creatures whose colors and shapes and designs blew my mind. And I just thought to myself, how many of these creatures in the depths of the ocean were unseen to the human eye for most of human history? They below, like the galaxies above, exist solely for the praise of the Creator. Oh, friends, my God is so big. 
so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Perhaps we need to sing the children's song afresh. Come behold the works of the Lord. But then consider God's mighty acts and awesome deeds and redemption and the salvation of his people and the judgment of his enemies. You know, we rehearsed many of them last week, didn't we? In Psalm 106, remember that? Friends, no mighty act in the Old Testament is greater than God's mighty deliverance of his people at the, in the Exodus in delivering his people from slavery in Egypt. Friends, so great is our God that he brought the world's superpower to its knees, even though his people, his people didn't even have to unsheathe their swords. In one awesome night, God killed all the firstborn of Egypt. As my pastor friend Brad Baum wrote, no one is safe when God comes to judge, but neither can anyone judge when the Lord determines to save. Praise God. Friends, in the very act of judgment, God saved his people by the blood of the lamb. And in mercy, he called them out of slavery to come into his arms. When Pharaoh's army pursued them, the Lord opened the Red Sea as easily as you just opened your Bible this morning. And when Israel had safely passed, he folded the mighty waters back into place and Pharaoh's army sunk like a lead balloon to the bottom. Beloved, you cannot save when the Lord determines to judge and you cannot judge when the Lord determines to save. Perhaps David thought about Gideon's tiny 300-man army. The Lord's against all odds victory over the Midianites. Judges 7.11 says, And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the peoples of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is in abundance. In other words, this army was huge. And yet, who can be against you when the creator of heaven and earth is on your side and fighting your battles? When the 300 blew the trumpets and shouted a sword for the Lord and for Gideon, what happened? The enemy ran around like crazed dogs, began to kill each other. The Lord God triumphed. Friends, how much more significant is Psalm 145, 4-7 for us as Christians on this side of the cross? We have so much farther a view of history than David did, right? We, not, we don't only look back at, at the mighty acts of redemption that previewed our salvation. We look back at the mighty acts that brought us our salvation. We sing about the wondrous mystery of the dawning of the King. About the eternal God made flesh. And of a virgin girl who conceived the God-man by the explosive power of the Holy Spirit. We look back at the mightiest of the mighty acts of the Lord. The cross and the empty tomb where instead of judging his enemies, Jesus in love died for his enemies. At the cross, it wasn't the enemies being drowned in the wrath of the, of the waters of God's wrath. It was God's son. He was judged so that we might be delivered from our bondage to sin and death. God saves us through the blood of his lamb. When the third day rolled around, God once again fought the battle that his people couldn't win. In the morning, death was dead. Love had won. Christ had conquered. Oh, friends, look back on the mighty acts of the Lord and look forward to mighty acts yet to come. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. 
No wonder David in verse 4 pictures the praises of the Lord cascading like a waterfall from generation to generation. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Friends, God's greatness is so limitless that generation after generation will praise it and still not come close to exhausting it. God's praise echoes down through the ages and then on into eternity. Friends, is there any doubt that when David wrote Psalm 145, that he had Deuteronomy 6 in his mind. Deuteronomy 6, what does the scripture say? And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children. Parents, grandparents, can you sing Psalm 145.4 with honesty and authenticity and joy? Is this the ultimate goal of your parenting and grandparenting? Is this what consumes your heart and your desires for your kids that they might glory with you in God's mighty acts? Well, friends, as I studied this this week, I was so convicted. Far too often, my parenting devolves into just kind of behavioral management so that I'm not too bothered by my kids' actions and behavior. Oh, friends, God has given us our children so that we might declare to them his awesome deeds and his mighty acts. If we don't, who will? If we don't fill our kids' minds and imaginations with the greatness of our God and the stories of his glory, oh, don't you worry, an infinite number of lesser glories in the world are rushing in to take God's place. And they will. Oh, friends, we ought to regularly pray to, our, to ourselves with our, with our families. Oh, God, let my children know you and be captivated by you. Oh, help the flimsy greatness of, of money or fame or status or success to be utterly unsatisfying to my kids. Rather, let them praise your unfathomable greatness every day forever and ever. But it's not just parents who sing the psalm, is it? We embody the words of Psalm 145.4 every time we gather on the Lord's Day, when generations declare to one another the mighty acts of the Lord. Friends, we don't gather to check off a box. We gather to extol the glories of our God and King. That's what we're doing this morning. That's what we've done. Thank you for being here. What's so convicting about these verses, I think, to me, is that our lethargy, our lethargy to declare God's mighty acts to our children and to each other exposes the fact that we just don't love God as much as we think we do. If the praise of God dominates our hearts, it will invariably come out. If it doesn't come out, it doesn't dominate our heart. That's just the reality. Something else is on the poster of the wall of our hearts. More likely than not, what we're staring at is the image of ourselves. Our own glories, our own rule dominates our hearts and consumes our vision. Oh, friends, God has called us to something greater, far greater. Like David, we must meditate on God's wondrous words. Friend, fill your tank up with truth so that it might spill out in praise. God is infinitely worthy of our worship every day and forever. First of all, because of his unfathomable greatness. Number two, why is God infinitely worthy of your praise? Because of his gracious reign. Look at verse eight. According to these verses, God isn't only great, he's good and gracious and merciful. Verse eight, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. 
Friends, remember what God is, or excuse me, what David is doing here. He's meditating on God's wondrous words, and then he's rehearsing them back to the Lord in praise. And here, I think he's, he's clearly paraphrasing specific words, the time God spoke of his own glory. You can find it in Exodus 34, 6. Exodus 34, 6 is the most quoted verse in all the Old Testament. It's hugely, massively important. What did the Lord say when he caused his goodness to pass by Moses and he proclaimed his name, who he was? What did he say? How did God describe himself? The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Friends, what did God lead with? What did the creator of heaven and earth lead with when he, when he proclaims his name, who he is? Mercy. Grace. Forgiveness. Slowness to anger. It's shocking. Or at least it should be if you understand the depth of human depravity. If you understand the depth of your own sin, this should shock us. Friends, we wouldn't have been shocked if the Lord had passed before Moses and said something like this, the Lord, the Lord, a God holy and righteous, exacting injustice, purposeful in wrath, and abounding in vengeance upon the wicked. That would not have surprised us. But mercy? Forgiveness? Friends, hell should not shock you. Wrath shouldn't surprise you. Heaven should shock you. Mercy should stun you. What should cause our jaws to hit the floor isn't that God is just to judge, but that He is merciful to pardon. Let's remember who wrote this psalm. It's one of the great sinners of the Old Testament, right? A man whose sin was, was brazen and frankly disgusting. But David had come to know what can only be described as God's scandalous mercy. Steadfast love and forgiveness to the vilest of sinners who repent and believe. Friends, the, the, the scandal of God's mercy is not merely that he forgives the guilty. The scandal that he, is that he has done so by judging the sins of the guilty upon the innocent. That's the true scandal. That in jaw-dropping love, God gave himself for us through Christ the Son. Praise God. Notice that we're not merely to praise God for His special grace and covenant with His people. We're to praise God for His common grace and His covenant with all creation. You know, perhaps here in verse 9, David even had in mind God's promise to Noah after the flood that he would remain committed to all of his creation, kind of to be the platform for his salvation to come. Look how verse 9 kind of broadens the scope. The Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made. Friends, so kind is the Lord that He willingly, generously pours out some of His kindnesses even to the very rebels who worship false gods. He causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. Not to mention the birds and the land animals and the sea creatures. David returns to this idea of God's common grace to his whole creation in verses 15 to 16. So benevolent is our God that He gives food in due season, satisfies the desire of every living thing. 
Friends, how should you think about this? How, how should we kind of conceive of God's mercy and grace? How are, how are we to understand it? Well, well J.I. Packer, who's now gone to be with the Lord, uh, wrote his, uh, his unbelievable book, Knowing God. I couldn't think of another adjective. It's, it's unbelievable, okay? You should read it like every year or every other year. Highly recommended, Knowing God. Here's how Packer described God's mercy and the relationship between God's grace and common and special. He said, God is good to all in some ways, and He is good to some in all ways. God is good to all in some ways. That's common grace. And He is good to some in all ways. That is special grace. That is saving grace. Friend, if you're not a Christian this morning, don't mistake one for the other. Don't mistake God's common grace for His special grace. Don't, don't think that because you live in God's world and you enjoy food and water and sunshine and provision and shelter and all the rest, that you and God are good. That the scepter of God's favor is, is, is kind of extended towards you. No, friends. You would be wise to consider the truth of Romans 2.4. Paul asks, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness? and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you toward repentance. God is so kind to you because he's calling you to come to him. Friend, do you know this God? Do you see how kind he's been to you? To let you live in his world and have your every need met? Do you see his mercy extended to you this morning through the personal work of Christ? You know what the, th the just amazing thing about God's mercy is? It's as free as his gift of rain that falls on the earth. You can't work to earn it. You simply trust to receive it. You know, you may be here this morning, you just feel like, man, my sins just are so great. They like pile up to the heavens before me. Surely God would not want me. He simply could not forgive me. I'm too dirty. I'm too solid. You don't know what I've done. Friends, there is far more mercy in God than there is sin in you, Richard Sibbs. Far more. The worse we are, the more we need Christ. You know, when you, when you do your laundry, for instance, and you see a, a, a badly stained shirt, you don't think, you know what, I think that, dirt, that, that shirt is too dirty to be washed. <laughs> no, it's because the shirt is dirty that it needs to be washed. It's precisely because of that. If you don't do this type of thing with your clothes, why would you do it with your soul? Why wouldn't you come to Christ today and receive His forgiveness by faith? Grace is grace because it's free. But it's free to us because it was costly to Christ. He paid the price so that you might receive the gift. Friend, don't spurn such a good and gracious king as this. Speaking of the king, David sings the praise of God's rule and reign over the next few verses, verses 10 to 13. Look at it together. In verse 10, it's like God's works in creation and his people of his, of his new creation, you might say, they join forces to praise his rule. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. What is it exactly that they praise? Well, there's no mistaking it, is it? They're praising God for his reign. That's what David means by God's kingdom. His rule is reign. 
They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. We've heard that before, right? In verse 5, David praised God for the glorious splendor of his majesty. Now corresponding to that is the glorious splendor of God's rule. Verse 13, look at it together. Verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Hey, did you catch it earlier when Jasmina was reading from Daniel 4? A humbled King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon quoted Psalm 145.13. It's amazing. God's kingdom will far outlast any earthly kingdom. Mighty Babylon was brought to his knees and is now nothing more than an archaeological excavation site. But God's kingdom endures forever. Maybe you've been to Rome and walked through the Colosseum or the Forum like Lindsay and I did a few years ago. Maybe you've been to the Mayan ruins in Mexico or the, or the pyramids of Egypt. All testify to a past glory, right? To a bygone kingdom authority. None of them can claim the enduring power and wisdom baked into the reign of the creator of all things. None of them holds a candle to the glory of God, the kingdom of his Christ who came to redeem and reclaim what Adam had lost. You see, friends, God's kingdom reign. Let me just talk to you a little, just for a second about God's kingdom. God's kingdom reign is not only expressed through his sovereignty over all things as creator. He purposes to bring about the realization of his reign through a human king who would rule for him like Adam was supposed to do in the beginning. That's the purpose of the world. That's why God created us. We're to rule for God on his behalf, to spread his glory across the whole earth. That's what Adam was supposed to do. That's what Adam forfeited in the fall. That's what the coming king, the Christ, was called by God to do. Turn quickly to Daniel 7. Daniel 7. It's on page 740-something. Okay, I'm getting there with you. Daniel 7, 745, I believe. So, so in, in Daniel 4 that we read earlier, Nebuchadnezzar extols God's kingdom, right? And now in Daniel 7, Daniel sees the vision of God's kingdom promises coming true. Look at verse 13. Daniel seven thirteen. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That sounds familiar. Which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Friends, here comes the new and better Adam. The son of man. The one who yet stunningly comes on the clouds of heaven, he must not only be the son of man, he must also be the son of God. Here he comes. Daniel prophesies. Now look at your worship guide. Look at your worship guide. Look at the call to worship. You want to know how to sing Psalm 145 through the lens of Christ and his gospel? Just read Revelation 5. What did John see in the throne room of heaven? Friend, who was found worthy? with the universal authority to open the scroll of history and unfold redemption's plan, who was worthy? Only the lamb who had been slain, 
<laughs> John cries, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation. And you have made them what? A kingdom. And priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Friends, you see this? You know what Revelation 5 is doing? It's like fusing together all these ideas we've been talking about so far. Bam! Here it is. How will God reign forever? It's through the Son of Man and the Son of God who will sit on the throne. And how will this king take up his reign over his people? How will his people rejoice in his reign rather than tremble in fear? Oh, it's because the great king is also the lamb who was slain. He has made us a kingdom and priest to our God because he has died for us and risen again. Beloved, lift up your eyes. Lift up your eyes and behold the king. If David could rejoice in the wonders of God's gracious rule, so many of which were yet to be revealed, how much more should we rejoice as we see Jesus reigning on the throne of the universe? You know, it, it may seem now that this reign is, you know, because it's not fully realized, is it? Right? We still live in this age where death and sin haunts us. But friends, one day the king will return. And in the twinkling of an eye, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ in a moment. And he shall reign forever. So don't lose hope. No matter what's going on in your life this morning, no matter what fears kind of arise in your hearts, oh, don't wring your hands and worry. Don't navel gaze and self-pity, friends. You have kingdom grace now and you have kingdom glory then. It's coming. So lift your head, open your mouth, and sing the songs of the king and his kingdom. Make it your life's ambition, friend, to tell others about this king. Make it your life's ambition to open your mouth and proclaim the glories of this kingdom. You'll be doing this work forever, so why not get a head start on it now? Number three, why is God infinitely worthy of your praise? Well, because of his faithful righteousness. Very quickly, you know, typically the more power someone has, the less in tune he is with the needs of those under his authority. It's like the natural human instinct and pride. But verses 14 to 20 speak of the king of heaven and earth walking the earth. It's like, you know, he's walking through the earth and he's, he's helping the vulnerable and the needy and all who look to him by faith. Look at verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling down and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you. You give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. I love this image. Friends, we do not have a tight-fisted ogre of a king, right? We have one whose hand is open like a father to his children. He is good without reservation. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind or faithful. That's the word hesed. That's the word for faithful love. I think it could be translated faithful. He's righteous in all his ways. He's faithful in all his works. Love how David kind of pairs righteousness and faithfulness, right? He's not just recounting God's kindness, but his, his, his steadfast love that matches his righteousness. Verse 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Friend, 
are we actually talking about the same God here? Are we talking about the God of verses 3 to 7? The great and awesome God who created all things? How can He be the same God who tenderly bends His ear to hear the prayers of His people? Peons like us. How can this one who determines the number of stars also heal the brokenhearted? I have no idea, except for the fact that this is who He is. These are the manifold glories of our God, high yet stooping low, transcendent yet near, omnipotent yet tender. It's like the refractions of a diamond, each turn sparkling with a new and different glory for us to praise. Friends, God is not some faceless, distant deity too busy to be bothered by your cares. No, He is the God who draws near, even as He stepped into time and place as our Emmanuel, God with us. He continues to dwell with us and among us by His Spirit. Verse 19, He fulfills the desire of those who fear Him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. You know, friends, the faithful righteousness of the Lord is a great comfort to those who have found refuge in him, but it should be a terror to those who have not. Non-believing friend, my non-Christian friend, let me just make one more appeal to you this morning. Don't assume that God's common grace will be yours to enjoy forever. In fact, common grace ends when time and history end. In hell, there is only common justice. Don't walk past and ignore God's saving special grace in Christ. Friends, frankly, I don't know how a Christian can read Psalm 145 and just not want to praise this God not want to grow in love for this God and give Him everything he or she has? Oh, friends, this is the God who should capture our heart's imagination and admiration that He might receive from us every day praise and honor and blessing and glory. Let's read that last verse again as our conclusion. Psalm 145, 21. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you've called our hearts to praise you. And I pray pray that we as your people, that we as individuals and we as a church would do just that. Oh, Lord, that Redeeming Grace Church, the saints here, Uh, in this, your your, uh, embassy of the kingdom here in the Southwest Valley. Oh, Lord, help us to be a people marked by wholehearted worship and by a whole life praise of you through your son, by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.